Well, now all the exciting bits are over, and uh, now you get to listen to me. Now, I know that I've formally introduced myself to the congregation quite a while ago, I think in the first week of September, and uh, I've gotten to know quite a few people here since then, but all the same, please allow me to formally introduce myself just once more, just in case some of you are justifiably wondering, who is this hairy young gentleman? Where did he find such a fantastic jacket? And can a man with such a keen fashion sense really be trusted in such a lofty place as the pulpit? Apparently not. Yes, I can't tell you yet whether I can be trusted up here. Perhaps that's up to you. And I don't remember where I actually got this jacket. But I can tell you who I am. My name is Byron Kappas, and I'm a second-year student at Knox Theological Seminary at the University of Toronto. And I'm here at Glenview for the next seven months or so as part of my program at the school, basically to learn and work as a student minister under the supervision and guidance of Reverend Dr. DeWolf. It's my intention while I'm here to get as much honest to God hands-on ministry experience so that when I graduate and when I thrash and flounder my way into my first church like a fish out of water, I won't suffocate immediately. Now, although I have very little ministry experience yet, I will tell you I'm no stranger to the Presbyterian church. I was, in fact, baptized and raised in a Presbyterian church very much like this one here in a small town called Amherstburg here in Ontario. Our order of worship wouldn't have been exactly identical to the one that Glenview uses here, but in terms of the way worship looked, it was very similar in most respects at my home church of St. Andrews. We sang similar ones to the ones you've heard today. We had a similar organ to this one here. We had wonderful stained glass windows all around us like these. And we celebrated the Christian sacraments such as baptism and communion in almost exactly the same way. So I imagine two Sundays ago during World Communion Sunday that helping Reverend DeWolf serve communion would be an absolute breeze for me. I'd seen essentially the exact same thing done countless times before at St. Andrews. But you see, St. Andrews Presbyterian is a very small church in a very small town. I think you could actually fit our entire church in this sanctuary. I felt this difference in size right in the pit of my stomach almost as soon as communion started, as soon as I sat down behind that table and realized the size of the sanctuary, the, the sound, the acoustics. Being in such a big city, it all dawned on me as making this communion so much more momentous than I had been used to. And then that clouded my mind with doubt and fear and anxiety until there I was, frozen in place with two plates of cups, one in each hand, 
and nowhere to put them because every square inch of the communion table was somehow already covered with plates, even though I knew they all fit there beforehand. I thought to myself, what is this black magic? I had forgotten, of course, that the, the cup plates stack on top of each other. And Reverend DeWolf quickly swooped in and reminded me of this, and all was well, but for a few tense moments, I was at an absolute loss. I eventually managed to take a breath, and for the rest of communion, I was able to relax myself into the experience, to realize after my brief moment of crisis that regardless of how big and imposing this sanctuary can appear, we are all at the same Lord's table. And I am not only a servant, but also a guest. And even though I might feel very nervous and very unsure of myself and of what to do, much like right now, I have only to trust that things will go according to God's plan. To trust that God wouldn't have made the plate if there weren't a spot at the table for it. To take a breath in a moment of crisis, to relax ourselves during times of stress, anxiety, and distraction, often seems counterintuitive to us, doesn't it? Even though a lot of the times it's the absolute best thing we can do for ourselves and our situation. When we are worried or anxious about something, we instinctively want to do something about it. We either fear that we're better off being industrious, being of some use, being helpful, or else we fear, or else we feel that we need to voice our frustration, to let someone know that we are not happy. But being helpful doesn't always require one's actions. And complaints are not always appropriate. Sometimes what God requires most of us is our patience and our peace. Simply for us to calm down, to listen for God's plan, and not to try to contrive one of our own that will surely be inferior. When Jesus enters a certain village on his travels. A woman named Martha comes up to him and invites him into her home. As the head of her household, she takes this privilege and this initiative. For some reason, it seems that Martha, more than anyone else, feels that Jesus is in need, in need of her hospitality, in need of a roof over his head for the night, and a hot meal in his stomach. Perhaps she senses that this rabbi, this great teacher, this wonderful man is approaching a time of crisis, as indeed we know he is. Perhaps Martha senses that Jesus has something to say to her before he leaves this world. For whatever reason, Martha's heart goes out to Jesus, and she is compelled 
admirably to express this feeling, the only way that she knows how, with her hospitality, with her works, her actions. Even though it will mean a great deal of work and worry for Martha. Some people just have that kind of hospitality hardwired into their brains, right? My grandfather on my dad's side, who all of the grandchildren in the Kappas family just call Papa, has been an incorrigible host for as long as I can remember. Every time I would go to visit him in Stratford, he'd greet me and my parents at the door to his apartment, and immediately, almost impulsively, he would ask if we wanted a glass of, of juice. It was almost always juice for some reason, either orange or apple. That's what he had in the fridge. And I would say, no thanks, Papa, I'm good. I had a coffee on the, on the drive up, I'm fine. And he'd say, okay, fair enough. But how about I slice up some summer sausage and we can have some of that? And he always had these big logs of summer sausage that he would slice up. And I'd say, no, Papa, I'm not hungry. I already ate well, on the way here with my coffee. He says, okay, that's fine. But are you sure you don't want me to heat up some of Grandma's pasta from last night? No, Papa, we're, we're okay. We're not hungry. We're not thirsty. We just came to visit. And don't get me wrong, it's very nice to be fed. But Papa was so busy feeding us and, and looking after our needs that he barely got time to talk to the man. Now, Jesus doesn't rebuke Martha for being a good host. Of course not. But Martha has chosen for herself to be worried and distracted by many things, by her duty as a good host. And when she rebukes her sister Mary for not choosing the same part, for slacking off and hanging out with Jesus, while Jesus tells Martha, the consummate host, that Mary's choice is the better part. Mary chooses to get to know the man who has come into her house. She realizes that as much as she and her sister might be able to give Jesus through their hospitality, Jesus, the one that they have invited into their home, is the person with the real gift for them. The gift of God's stillness and peace amidst anxieties and distractions. The gift of Jesus' comforting words and his good teachings. But Martha struggles against Jesus' stillness because of her anxieties and distractions. Somehow it seems, and perhaps we can identify with Martha in this respect, that she almost prefers her anxieties to Jesus' peaceful company. You might say that Martha is addicted to the turmoil of her own anxiety, so that the stillness of Jesus seems to her to be intolerable. Martha turns into her own anxiety and distraction, almost welcoming them. And in doing so, she turns herself away from Jesus. 
And this is not without precedent, as Jesus is no doubt aware in this moment. Martha perhaps reminds Jesus of the Israelites of Exodus, who experience a similar habitual attachment to an anxiety, an attachment so powerful in them that they nearly allow it to march them freely back into the hands of their oppressors, the Egyptians. When the Israelites are caught between the Red Sea and the Egyptian war machine, they do cry out to the Lord in fear. But then they turn to Moses and they say to him, we told you so. We told you that this wouldn't work. We knew that we never should have left Egypt. At least there we would have had a chance at life. But out here in the wilderness, we only have a chance to die. The Israelites allow their anxieties and fears of being abandoned by God to die in the wilderness. They allow these anxieties to cloud their judgment and to make them believe that they would be better off in certain oppressive captivity than in uncertain freedom. That's the power of anxiety and distraction. Very different in circumstance, but I think quite similar in kind to the anxiety that Martha is dealing with. Martha meets Jesus. She hears his words, just as the Israelites have seen God's hand at work in a multitude of ways, in terrible plagues and in wonders and in miracles. But all that disappears in the face of new anxieties and distractions. And I'm not talking about that. That's just fine. Just as Martha's hospitable zeal for Jesus gives way to her inability to settle down and to just listen to him. Now Moses does tell the Israelites exactly what they need to hear. He says to them, Do not be afraid. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to keep still. This is the good news that Jesus communicates to Martha. Stop your worrying. Clear your mind of distraction. God is here and he has a plan. Throw some microwavables in the oven. We'll be just fine. Had the Israelites allowed their anxieties to control them, they very well may have led themselves back into Egyptian captivity and would never have experienced the promised land of God recorded in our Old Testament. And had Martha dragged Mary off to do some mundane chores to carry the burden of Martha's anxieties, how much poorer Mary's life would have been, and Martha's as well. To have been deprived of the company of Jesus, all for the sake of a few worries and distractions. 
Now, speaking of worries and distractions, who's excited to vote this week? Mm. Just a very, very, very low nervous laughter there. Now, far be it from me to tell anyone how to vote, who to vote for, or whether to vote at all. I know that many people of my own age group uh, don't bother to go out to vote. They just say, you know what? It doesn't matter what I do. Maybe they're right. I don't know. Voting is a strange thing to me these days because I can't tell anymore if it's a right, a duty, or a privilege. I know it's all three, but it's difficult to feel like good things are going on when you walk into that voting booth. For some reason, I was taught or learned from my parents growing up that it is rude and improper to inquire into people's voting habits. You don't ask people how much they make, and you don't ask people who they voted for. Those are the two rules my parents had when interacting with adults. And in some sense, I think that that's correct. But I am worried that the reason I've carried forward this habit into adulthood is partially because I'm just afraid to know who other people have voted for at all. Because I don't want to have my opinion of people change based on who they might have voted for. Who we vote for in these federal elections is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what we believe personally in ourselves. But oftentimes I think we take it as a good indication of how people think about certain things. Often just enough of an indication for us to justify judgment. Our worries and our anxieties are often manifested in our politics. So much so that if someone is at odds with us politically, we can easily make the mistake of identifying that person as a source or the source of our worry and anxiety. When really the things that we are worried or anxious about are so much bigger than any one person. It can be quite difficult, especially in a fairly charged political climate, to remove one's opinion of an individual from knowledge of that individual's choice in the voting booth. So for my part, I just prefer not to know who anyone's voting for at all. But as for the voting itself, what can I say? As we move out into this election, let us just vote according to our conscience. Let us vote prayerfully and carefully and with a heart and mind for Christ. Let those things in the world that we are worried about and that often pit us against each other, let those things speak to us and inform us, but only from a place of stillness and peace in Jesus Christ, not from a place of chaos and anxiety, a place from which we are compelled to make rash decisions or harsh judgments. 
Finally, let us strive to keep our strongest worries and anxieties from obscuring our judgment in our personal lives. Pray that we do not make the mistake of anxious Martha and the frightened Israelites. But instead, let us strive to maintain that stillness in Jesus Christ that alone will ensure that we do not go astray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.